So, how many of you have heard the song, Jesus Take the Wheel? Some of you, okay, about a third of you maybe. It's a song, um, it was uh, it was recorded by Carrie Underwood um, in 2005, and it was originally on the country charts, but it crossed over onto Christian radio and into um, the adult contemporary charts. It sold very well. She became famous. She had, she had become famous because of American Idol, but that song really kind of cemented her reputation, um, and it became a very popular song. Um, I just I, when I was when I was preparing for this, I, I did some research and I found out it sold a million ringtones. So so not just not just the song itself, but actually a million ringtones. It's a platinum ringtone song. So if you're not familiar with it, the song is a, is the story of a woman who is who is kind of making an emotionally fraught journey, and uh, she comes across a bad stretch of road, her car goes out of control, and she uh, says, Jesus, take the wheel. And Jesus uh, delivers her in the song from from this uh, moment of danger. And, and uh, so I encourage you to listen to it if you want, um, if, if you like um, tearjerkers. So um, it's, a, it's, it's a perfectly good song, uh, but... The reason I'm kind of I'm conflicted about it is because in my own experience, um, you know, if you were to talk Jesus, talk to Jesus, how often does Luke let you have the wheel at all? Um, that number may not be as big as it ought to be. Um, my guess is that if you were to if you were to ask Jesus, how often are you driving Luke's car, um, a metaphorical car, not just not just um, uh, the the actual vehicle? Hopefully, um, I'm, I've got control of that. But if you think of the idea of Jesus taking the wheel, Jesus kind of controlling our lives, I'm not sure if Jesus is doing that as much as he should. But I'll tell you, when a crisis comes, when I look at when I look at something, um, what I'm tempted to do is to grab the wheel back. I don't know if if any of you can can kind of relate to that. The idea of a crisis in your life that reveals that when it comes to matters of faith, you're kind of a backseat driver. That that when there's trouble and and, and maybe a crisis of some kind maybe just something that's making you anxious, those are the moments when I find it easiest to say, Jesus, I'll take the wheel now. Jesus, um, I-, I want the wheel back because I'm not sure that you are driving this car the place I want you to go. Um, maybe maybe, uh, maybe you can relate to this. Maybe, maybe if you think about it, you say to yourself, in my life, the places where I feel the least comfortable about Jesus's plan or Jesus's uh, driving skills are, you know, when I turn in the news, when, when I hear about shootings in Copenhagen or, or last month shootings in Paris. And I think to myself, what must it be like to go to, uh, uh, we don't have, uh, uh, Christian bakeries, but we have Christian bookstores. Suppose you went to a Christian bookstore, um, to pick up a new Bible or something and somebody targeted that institution. And they said, I'm going to shoot somebody there because I don't like Christians. Or suppose, uh, as we saw yesterday in the news in Copenhagen, they went to a synagogue. They actually went to a place of worship. Imagine if they came to a church. Uh, some bad person who didn't like Christians came to a church because they wanted to shoot a Christian. Wouldn't that kind of challenge your thinking about Jesus? Wouldn't you say, Jesus, I'm not sure if I like the way you're driving this vehicle. I don't like this plan you've got. I'm not sure that this was part of your plan. Um, I can I can say, yes, Jesus, you've got a plan for the world. But there's moments when I say, Jesus, I'm not sure if this is part of that. I don't know, were you thinking about this or are you just improvising? Did you really have it all planned out? Are you really in charge? Are you really the ruler of all things, as we confess? 
or did you somehow just kind of forget this thing right here? Maybe it's not, maybe it's not the big issues. Maybe it's not war and terrorism. Maybe those aren't the things that, that bring this feeling out. Maybe it's something where you're, you're reading the newspaper and you read about how, you know, low prices at the pump are one thing, but it also means jobs with the state government and people who in turn depend on the state government. Maybe you're concerned about what does this mean for my job or the job of somebody I care about? Where you're thinking, you know, yes, I know Jesus is in charge of the world, but I'm not sure he's in charge of the state budget. I'm not sure he's in charge of my job. I'm not sure if he's in charge of the headcount at my company. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, this is a serious thing. Maybe it's when you go to school and things happen to you at school that you cannot even figure out how to explain to your parents because they cannot relate to what's going on. And you say, yes, Jesus is in charge of the world, but he's not in charge of third period. Maybe that's the situation where you say, yes, I get the idea of Jesus in charge of the world, but but I don't think he's in charge of this moment. Jesus is not the king of this particular place. I don't know if I like this plan. And so when my life is going through these circumstances, those are the moments, instead of saying, Jesus, take the wheel, I say, Jesus, give me the wheel back because somebody's got to drive. And I'm not pleased with the way things are coming out now. If you've ever felt that way, I have good news for you. You are not the first persons to feel that way. In fact, in the scripture, we read about people who did that exact same thing. In verse, in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, we read how Jesus revealed his plan. He said, here's some things that are going to happen. He said this, he said, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And so the disciples said, okay, great plan. I trust you implicitly. No, what they said is, that's a terrible plan. I hate that idea. They did what we often do. They looked at a plan that Jesus had underway, and they said, I better take the wheel back, because I don't like the way you're driving this thing. Peter said, uh, Peter, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned and he looked at his disciples. Peter was not alone. Jesus looked at the other disciples who were thinking the same thing. Peter's just more willing to talk. And he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things but on human things. So that happened just a few verses before the passage we're going to look at today. And it is the response to that lack of trust on the part of the disciples. So we read at the beginning of chapter 9, it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. So Peter, who was kind of the, the spokesperson of that group, and James and John, who were kind of implicated. And they're not mentioned by name, but they do appear in chapter 10, and it shows that they didn't learn anything the first time. They're promoting jobs for themselves in Jesus' cabinet. They clearly were not paying attention. So, so Jesus takes those three and leads them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. This word transfigured is unfortunately all we get. We read in, we read in, um, the, the other, the, there's, this, this event happens, or is mentioned, five places in the Bible. In, in the four gospels, the four gospel accounts, the four biographies, we read that Jesus was transfigured, or in Luke's gospel it says that his appearance changed. Um, all John tells us is that we beheld his glory. And Peter writes in his letter, Peter says that uh, we beheld his majesty. 
So we don't know what does that look like. We don't know what Jesus, what Jesus looked like when he was transfigured. We just know it was, it was something very, very uh, special because they all write about it different ways. Um, but we do get this hint. His clothes became dazzling white such as no one on earth could bleach them. And we might say, well, in those days they didn't have good washing machines, they didn't have bleach and so forth, and he kind of preempts that. He says, no, no, if you're thinking bleach, you've got a whole different image, you need to, you need to work with me on this. So bleach is not the answer. And then he goes on, he says, the, there appeared with them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here, let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say for they were terrified. That's Peter. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Uh, this is the same words we heard at, at Jesus' baptism. This is my son, the beloved. But he adds, the voice from the cloud adds something else, says, Listen to him. And with Moses there, it's probably an indication that if you go back to Deuteronomy 18, uh, God speaks through Moses and says, God will raise up a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. So uh, God is saying, there's, there's, this is the one you're supposed to listen to. And they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. So what is this? how does this have anything to do with the events that ended the previous chapter? The events where Jesus said, here's my plan, and the disciples said, that's a bad plan, and Jesus said, you've got your mind set on the things of earth, not of God. Well, it has to do with this phrase. Jesus talks about the Son of Man. The beginning of our reading, or the end of our reading, it says, says uh, he ordered them to tell no one until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And that is a reminder that just in the previous chapter, he had said the Son of Man must be um, must undergo great suffering. So what does he mean by Son of Man? Well, it's an ambiguous phrase. In in the Hebrew of the Bible, it could mean anything. There, there was no word for human being. So sometimes uh, people translate it as human being. Sometimes it's translated as mortal. There isn't a phrase like our own human being. So Son of Man sometimes means that. In the book of the prophet Ezekiel, uh, he's routinely called by God mortal or Son of Man. And, and uh, so that's the way it appears in the Old Testament. But there's another place in the Bible where it's used where it means something completely different, and that's the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, um, Daniel is a prophet, and he's uh, having a sleepless night. He has this terrifying vision. There's these four beasts that, that represent four empires that go around the earth, and they do all this damage. They're destroying things and killing people. And Daniel is unsettled by this dream, but then he says... As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was as white as snow. Again, a reference to this white that you can't get, you wouldn't expect to see. The hair of his head was like pure wool, and a stream of fire issued, and ten thousand served. And the court sat in judgment. So the beasts are about to be judged. How are the beasts judged? The way the beasts are judged is, I saw one like a human being. And you can see a footnote. Our translation says a human being because they wanted to leave open the possibility this could be any human being. But the footnote says, Aramaic, like one like a son of man. I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he saw the ancient, he came to the ancient one as presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one 
that shall never be destroyed. Jesus has been talking about himself all through, all through his ministry. He says he's the, he's the son of man. And up to this point, the disciples haven't been sure what he meant. The disciples thought maybe he's a prophet like Ezekiel. He's a son of man. He's a, he's a mortal being. But in this event, in the transfiguration, the reason the transfiguration is significant is because Jesus is revealed to be not just any son of man, not just any mortal being, but the mortal being, the one who comes before God, the Ancient of Days, and is presented with this kingdom that will not pass away. Jesus uncloaks himself for a minute. He reveals himself for this moment to his disciples to be this king that God had promised. And then in verse 9 it says, As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them not to tell anyone. Because the problem is, the disciples have been given a glimpse. This is, this is in fact the Lord of heaven and earth. This is, this is the God that, the, the king that God had promised. But people misunderstand that. People want a king to behave a certain way. And Jesus says, I will tell you this. I've given you a glimpse, but you can't share it with other people because you'll lead them astray. The way that they will learn that I am the king, the way that they find that I have kingship is after I've risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. So the transfiguration reveals what kind of son of man Jesus is. So when we're reading the Bible, we read how Jesus is the son of man. The transfiguration is how we learn who the son of man is. Now, the question is for us, what do we do with that? The question is, are we satisfied with Jesus being king? Are we satisfied with the idea that Jesus is in fact this one who has the power to subdue these four terrifying beasts? That when we look at the world and we say, but there's crisis and there's trouble, there's economic and, and violence and every other kind of trouble that could unsettle us, these four beasts remind us that that Jesus is the king of lord uh, he's the lord of heaven and earth he's the king of the world he has the power to subdue all these things and he will but not in the way we might expect so when we're dealing with the problems in our lives when we're dealing with the the news when we're watching the news and we see we see people who shoot up synagogues who shoot up jewish bakeries and we say they are our enemies when the news people tell us they are our enemies, do we listen to what Jesus teaches us about our enemies, which is we're to pray for them? We saw that last week. Do we pray for our enemies? Or do we say they're our enemies and they have to be destroyed? When, when the doctor tells us we've got a problem that we need to deal with, do we listen to Jesus when he says, be not afraid? Is Jesus your king? Or is he just a teacher? That's the question we have to wrestle with. And what the transfiguration tells us is he is in fact the king. Last week we talked about the communion of the Holy Spirit. We talked about the community of the Christian church. And one of the reasons is this is a hard teaching. It's hard to remember when you're looking at the problem, when it's facing you down, it's hard to remember that Jesus is king. So God calls us into community where other people can encourage us and remind us. The other thing God calls us into is community that is led by anointed leaders. So we have, we have a, a church 
who is, who is led by people that God has called into leadership positions. The reason that God does that is because this is a hard teaching. It's hard for us to remember Jesus is the Lord. In a few minutes, we're going to ordain an elder into leadership in our church. We're going to, we're going to recognize two other people who have been called into leadership because we exist as a community. So when we have problems in our life, when we're finding it difficult to remember, when we're tempted to grab the wheel back from Jesus, this is what the communion of the Holy Spirit is about. It's a place where we hear and are reminded that God is in charge, that Jesus is the King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the transfiguration. We weren't there, but we see it throughout the pages of the New Testament over and over again. The apostles remind us of what a glorious sight it must have been to see Jesus as he truly is, to be able to trust him. It must have been like when they saw him after the resurrection. Lord, we haven't seen these events ourselves, but they're attested in Scripture, and they remind us that Jesus is in charge, that not even death can put an end to his plans. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us faith. When things are troublesome, when we are anxious, that you would give us faith to trust that we are still part of his plan and we don't have to grab the steering wheel back. We thank you also, Lord, for the church, that when we need encouragement, when we need accountability, we can find people in your church who will give it to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.